This is Words Matter with Elise Jordan and Steve Schmidt. Welcome to Words Matter. I'm Elise Jordan along with Steve Schmidt. Our goal is to promote objective reality. As a wise man once said, everyone is entitled to their own opinion, not their own facts. Words have power and words have consequences. Okay, I'm very excited today because we have Steve Kornacki here to talk about his amazing new book, The Red and the Blue. And Steve, I've got to tell you, reading this book is just nostalgia for me because it's kind of like my childhood growing up with my grandparents and my dad always obsessing over politics and seeing it through their lens of being staunch Reagan supporters Mm -hmm. and then voting for H.W. Bush and then some of the family split and voted for Perot Mm -hmm. and had very strong feelings about Bill Clinton, who is in neighboring Arkansas. Mm. So it has been interesting to finally study it and to have a little separation. And I'm just so excited that we have you in here. Today. Oh, thank you. No, and I just doing the book, it's it's kind of what you're describing. I had these skeletal memories of the 90s. It's when I kind of grew up, too. There were some things I remembered vividly, other things I remembered only in, in fragments. And it was this it was so fun to go back and sort of excavate all of the, the, the news coverage from the time and, and just discover all of this new context and meaning and it was I had a blast putting this together well it makes me feel a little old when you say that because I lived through this <laughs> I lived through it on Capitol Hill with Daniel Patrick Moynihan I lived through it at NBC News with Chris Matthews and Tim Russert and I have to say you nailed it that means a lot to hear thank you and I yeah. need to I was a bad hostess I should have introduced <laughs> Adam Levine our executive producer is joining today because he literally lived this story I feel like it should have been this is your life Adam. <laughs> but first tell Tell us how you got the title, because I think there's some significance yeah. there and what people remember and what your perception of where we talk about red states and blue states. Because before the 1990s, when you watched election returns on a network, the Republicans could be green, the Democrats could be red. Sometimes I even remember one election night where the Democrats were red and the Republicans were blue. So, Steve, as you're saying, this is something that was new in the 90s, right? Yeah, the red and the blue, I think that is the political legacy of the 90s. The fact that we now have this vocabulary for the map, the presidential map we get every four years, the red states and the blue states has such deep meaning right now in this country. It's not just that blue means Democratic and red means Republican. There is almost, there is a cultural meaning to red and blue right now. To be part of blue America means something very distinct. To be part of red America, to identify with that means something very distinct. And those concepts are a product of the 90s. If you had said that term at the start of the 90s, nobody would have known what you're talking about. And what it really was, all of the political battles, all of the wars of the 90s kind of built to that perfect tie election in 2000, Bush versus Gore, that almost perfect tie electoral map, 537 votes in Florida, and and, and red and blue that just tell the story of that, of that almost perfect division of the country. And I think it's the division we've been living with since. Well, and that's why I highlighted the line in the book, kind of towards the beginning of the book. You wrote, red America America and blue America, as we now know them, were born on November 7th, 2000, the product of an entire nation torn perfectly in half. So, yeah. And if you remember that map, I mean, I think we kind of take this for granted now. But if you think back from 2000, back, say, a generation before that, this country had elections, presidential elections that produced consensus. Ronald Reagan won 49 states in 1984, and he came 3,000 votes away. If he'd beaten Walter Mondale in Mondale's home state, just 3,000 more votes, he would have gone 50 for 50. 
You know, uh, Reagan in 1980 won 44. Bush in 88 won 40. We had lopsided elections. So it was not taken for granted as it is now that each party kind of walks into the general election with like, you know, 45 percent of the vote and 20 states and all of these things. Um, But when you looked at the map that kind of took shape on election night 2000, you saw the entire South turning red for Republicans. And that included Bill Clinton's Arkansas, Al Gore's Tennessee. And the whole promise of Clinton and Gore at the start of the decade was we're the Democrats who can win back the South. Because the South way back had been the Democratic stronghold. And by the end of the decade, Gore can't even carry his home state. And the Clintons moved to New York. To that point, let's go back because you go back to that election of 1984. And look, politics is about people and about characters. And you have some characters in this book and you start the journey there. Mm -hmm. And you start it at that Democratic convention in San Francisco and Mario Cuomo to set up the struggle in the 90s that became for the soul and the direction of the Democratic Party – Talk to us, set the scene in San Francisco, 1984. Start with Cuomo and we'll get to the other guy in a minute. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, 1984, right, Walter Mondale is going to be nominated and Democrats show up at the convention. They kind of know they're going to get trounced by Reagan in the fall. I don't think they even knew how bad it was going to be, but they they knew it wasn't going to be good. And so the whole subtext of the 1984 convention was who's going to emerge from here for 1988? Who's going to emerge from here to be the future of the party? And they were already demoralized because Carter had gotten wiped out in 1980. His presidency was not regarded as successful. This notion that Republicans had sort of a lock on the presidency, a lock on the Electoral College, that was starting to take hold. So it was a party that was starting to get a little desperate. It was a party that was getting demoralized. It was a party that was facing a a pretty solid defeat in November. And on the opening night, The keynote speaker steps forward. And at this point, he's in his second year as governor of New York. He has not much of a national reputation, national profile. He had endorsed Walter Mondale during the primaries, helped Mondale in New York. His name was Mario Cuomo. And Cuomo is going to deliver the keynote speech. And it is this incredible moment. And and it's it's amazing now we have the, the, the ability, you can go on YouTube or whatever, you can go back and watch this and see how that entire mood I'm describing that, that had a hold on the Democratic Party changes almost instantly with this guy's speech. In many ways, we are a shining city on a hill. But the hard truth is that not everyone is sharing in this city's splendor and glory. A shining city is perhaps all the president sees from the portico of the White House and the veranda of his ranch, where everyone seems to be doing well. But there's another city... There's another part to the shining city, the part where some people can't pay their mortgages and most young people can't afford one, where students can't afford the education they need and middle-class parents watch the dreams they hold for their children evaporate. In this part of the city, there are more poor than ever, more families in trouble, more and more people who need help but can't find it. I was fortunate enough that when I Worked for Moynihan in New York, and the Moynihan and the Cuomo camps didn't mm. always get along. Mm-hmm. But I remember going to a speech watching Mario Cuomo at a union event in Albany, New York. It was that 94 when he lost. Yeah. And I'm sitting next to him, the Moynihan campaign manager, but it was such a great speech. I jumped up and started clapping. Just And you, and you set that mood. But it was a dark, sort of tough speech he gives to those those delegates. The tale of two cities, because Reagan had just, he had, he had coined this term, he'd been using this term, that America was a city on a hill. 
And Mario Cuomo, the theme of his speech was, there's another part to the shining city, you know, where the glitter doesn't glow, one of the lines from it. And he talked about there's despair in America. This was a, a, a almost a lyrical speech, almost a poetic speech. He talked about the experience of watching his father work seven days a week in his store in Queens with calluses on his hands, with blood, like the hard work, the immigrants love for America, rising as Mario Cuomo did from that background, taking pride in his family, pride in his heritage, pride in what America offered him. And this idea, he talked about the family of America, you know, it's the, he had been the family of New York was his theme here, the family of America. And it really, it was, it was a Valentine to New Deal liberalism. It was a Valentine to that legacy of the Democratic Party that at that moment was really under attack from Ronald Reagan, that at that moment seemed to be in disfavor with the electorate. And and Democrats there started to think, they looked at Reagan and they said, here's an actor turned president, the great communicator, right? That's his (laughs) reputation. Here's what we need. Here's what we've been missing. We've got our own great communicator. We've got our own mesmerizing order who can sell the great deal who can sell the New Deal and can win back all these lost, the Reagan Democrats, we called them in the 1980s. There were delegates with tears in their eyes in San Francisco. The next day, they're talking, this is the next Kennedy. This is, we've never seen anything like this. 1988, I swear Mario Cuomo, especially after Gary Hart imploded, Mario Cuomo could have had the Democratic nomination if he wanted it in 88. Didn't run. And it builds. There was a guy who spoke the night Mm. before. (laughs) Who probably didn't like all the attention that (laughs) Cuomo managed to get and the accolades and Tell us about that politician in that speech. I, I, and I loved getting to parodies in the book. It was just a, such a natural pairing. But yes, Bill Clinton was the governor of Arkansas in 1984. He was uh, uh, 38 years old. He'd been elected first in 78, lost in 80, got it back in 82. They did two-year gubernatorial terms back then. So he clear, Bill Clinton was the guy everybody knows had wanted to be president since he was about six years old. Everything had been designed to put himself in position. So he comes to San Francisco in 84. He is looking to be the guy that people start talking about for 88. And he goes to every party. There's, there's a newspaper report I found. He found Warren Beatty. Warren Beatty was very, you know, big in the moment back then. He found Warren Beatty at a party. He found a way to kind of butter him up. You know, you really helped us in the McGovern campaign. <laughs> and I've been waiting 12 years to say thank you. And it's Clinton. He's the charmer. And he gets mentioned David Broder. And this is the biggest thing you can get in politics back then. If you get mentioned in a David Broder column Absolutely. in 1984, Clinton gets a mention, you know, along with 30 other Democrats. Here's somebody to keep an eye on. So that's nice. And he gets a speaking spot. It comes after a video tribute to Harry Truman, narrated by the actor Hal Linden, who had been in the show Barney, <laughs> Barney Miller exactly. at the time. And so and Clinton gets about five minutes and he delivers. It's a very, you know, average speech. You know, Harry would want want us to fight, that kind of thing. Polite applause. He smiles. He walks off the stage. He got his moment. He spoke. He got in the Broder column. He made the rounds. He thinks it's been a successful convention. And then the flip side of it is you got this guy Cuomo who goes to no parties, does not come out. He flies out the day of his speech. Nobody talks to nobody, walks on stage, delivers the speech, leaves the delegates in tears, leaves that if they if in the old days, they would have nominated him for president on the spot, walks off the stage, shakes a few hands, gets on the airplane, sleeps in his own bed. That was Mario Cuomo. He wanted none of the stuff that Bill Clinton, it was fuel for Bill Clinton. And yet Mario Cuomo, who didn't seem to want it for the next seven years, it's Democrats begging Mario Cuomo to run for president and Bill Clinton just just sort of fuming in his shadow. Now, there's a, there's a quirk in New York law where when the governor leaves the state, I believe, the lieutenant governor becomes the acting governor. The acting governor, governor right. So the, the control of Mario Cuomo, but at least is right now, this is where I get to ask you. You mentioned Bill Clinton growing up in the South. Tell us how Bill Clinton was regarded in that time in terms of – because he was pretty lonely, you know, Southern Democrat in, in that 
in, in that space? Well, I guess so, 92 – So I was 11 years old, and I remember – so in the run-up to that, 9, 10, and 11, Southern Republicans were not big fans of Bill Clinton. They thought he was very shady. There was just this uh, veneer of sleaziness that certainly had percolated within the South and people talking about his problems with women and his general sleaziness. And so that was just kind of the way that Bill Clinton was regarded, just something was shady. And they also didn't really necessarily like his career-minded wife who, my goodness, she didn't take his name. And how radical was that (laughs) back in the day? One thing that I did find great about the book was it kind of charted how Bill Clinton managed to change the Democratic Party Mm -hmm. by adopting – Somewhat of a Southern strategy, a reverse Southern strategy for Democrats. Yeah, and that was when we talk about these um, landslides Republicans were winning really almost for a generation there. Nixon in 72, Reagan twice, Bush in 88. The South was the epicenter of that Republican strength. And it was this quirk of the South at the time where it was still in, in sort of transition where in presidential races, Southern states were voting Republican two to one. But you still had Democrats as governor, like Bill Clinton in Arkansas, you know, Democrats in Congress. A lot of them were a lot more conservative than national Democrats. But you still had the remnants of what was once a a sort of a one-party Democratic Oh, yeah, all the good local elections. You had to run as a Democrat no matter what. It was was that weird disconnect. They'd vote for Reagan, you know, with 70 percent, and they'd vote for the local Democrat with 70 percent or more. And and Clinton basically, you know, Clinton's theory was it's impossible for a Democrat. This is his theory in 92. It's basically impossible for a Democrat to win back the White House without winning back not all of the South, but a good portion of the South. And so it was the idea of moderating particularly on cultural issues, um, particularly, you know, on the idea that you know, the national Democrat, the, the, the famous fight that Bill Clinton picked, and he, he only picked this after he had won the Democratic nomination, but right. Bill Clinton picked a fight with Jesse Jackson. Absolutely. And Jesse Jackson had tormented the past two Democratic nominees for president. And Bill Clinton, it was at the lowest moment in his 1992 campaign. At, the, at that point, he was running in third place behind Ross Perot and George Bush. Bill Clinton was back at like 22 percent nationally. And he goes to Jesse Jackson's Rainbow Coalition Conference oh, in D.C. Yes. And Jackson thinks, and Jackson did not like Bill Clinton because Jackson didn't like the Clinton wing of the party, the DLC. And Jackson thinks he's got Clinton sort of you know, at his mercy right here, because Clinton is weak and needs the Democratic base. So Jackson has this platform that he's going to uh, pressure Bill Clinton to adopt. And Bill Clinton had another plan. One of the interesting things I've, about this is how did we go from that Mario Cuomo of 1984 and Bill Clinton, as the least pointed out, kind of on the sidelines. Then Clinton gives the keynote in 88. And I think everybody cheered when he said, Michael Dukakis will never, never, never forget it. In closing, I want you to remember, I want you to remember. That was the 88. Bill Clinton gets the, the same spot at the DNC that Cuomo got in 84. So Clinton said, OK, look what it did to Cuomo. Now I'm going to do the same thing. And he tried way too hard. They stuffed every idea he ever had into this speech. And at the 33-minute mark of what was supposed to be a 10-minute speech, he said the word, the words, in conclusion. And the audience breaks out into cheers. NBC cuts away from it. And Tom Brokaw basically declares this, is, this could possibly be the end of Bill Clinton's once promising political <laughs> he, career. He, it's he, unbelievable. He does his political eulogy right there. Yep. I remember it. And at least pointed out that 92, Bill Clinton wins. 
What happens between 88 and 92? Is it that Cuomo won't get on the plane? Mm. Is it that the party takes a shift? Tell us about that journey. This is the, I think this is the most misunderstood aspect of how Bill Clinton became president because the story is generally told as Bill Clinton moved the Democratic Party to the middle and that made it electable in the fall. And that's true. Bill Clinton in the general election in 92 ran to the middle, distant, like with Jesse Jackson, distanced himself from a lot of sort of cultural liberalism and, and did win back a lot of those voters. But to get the Democratic nomination in 92, Bill Clinton caught a couple of major breaks. The first one was the Gulf War in early 1991, which, you know, the ground war lasted like 100 hours. People thought this was going to be Vietnam in the desert. There was huge national apprehension, major opposition from top Democrats. There was a Senate vote, you know, a week before combat began. Almost every Democrat voted against it. And there was this sense after that war, it was quick, it was triumphant, it was very, very low on casualties. There was the sense that the Democratic Party had been discredited thoroughly. And George H.W. Bush's uh, approval rating hit 91 percent. Every major Democrat dropped out or stayed out of the, of the 1992 race. You know, Bill Bradley, Richard Gephardt, Jay Rockefeller. So right away, Bill Clinton gets a big break because instead of having to run against these these big names, he gets like, you know, Paul Songus and you know, Tom Harkin steps right. forward. It wasn't it wasn't, you know, Doug Wilder. They weren't that for <laughs> Jerry right. Brown out of a 10 year exile in, in India and Japan. He comes back, declares himself sort of a radical, not stiff competition. And then late in the year, Bush's approval rating is starting to drop because the economy is getting really bad. And Mario Cuomo, who for seven years has steadfastly resisted taking any step to running for president, despite everybody in the party pleading with him to do it. Columbus Day weekend, 1991, he has a breakfast and he tells his supporters, he, unprompted, he tells his supporters, you know what, I'm going to look at running for president. And the thing leaks out. And for the rest of 91, the entire political world is paralyzed with Mario Cuomo's indecision. And one day he'll say to the press, you know what my heart tells me? Run, Mario, run. And the next day he'll muse about he has a greater responsibility to the people of Hamlet on the Hudson. Hamlet on the Hudson was exactly what they started calling him. He froze all of the money. Bill Clinton couldn't raise any money. He froze all the endorsements. They would take a poll. It would be Cuomo 45%, Clinton 8 If Cuomo gets in the race, it looks like it's over. And it's all building to December 20th, 1991, New Hampshire primary filing deadline. And Cuomo has got to decide, do you get in or not? There's he, a plane. Yes, he yes. charters a plane to New Hampshire from Albany. There's a whole budget showdown in Albany. He's got a plane idling on the tarmac of the Albany airport that's going to fly into New Hampshire. He also sends, the day before the deadline, they send a signed declaration of candidacy. Mario Cuomo's signature actually goes on this document, and they gave it to an individual named Joe Grand Mason in New Hampshire with the instructions, if there's inclement weather tomorrow and the governor can't fly to New Hampshire you must deliver this to get him on the ballot for president if we give you the sign. So there's all this suspense. CNN is like one of the first cable news political yep. dramas to play out in real time. CNN's camera is on the tarmac all day, Friday, December 20th. There's a report early that he'll get on board. There's a report later that, that he won't. The thing that I got in the book that was interesting was one of the last people Cuomo talked to that morning um, in making the decision was a former aide of his who he had a particularly high regard for, who had worked for him in Albany, who had wanted him, I think, to go national and then left to join the news media. And at that point was the Washington bureau chief for NBC News, Tim Russert. And Tim Russert and Mario Cuomo had deep, he loved Tim Russert. He also had deep respect for Tim Russert's political judgment because Russert was kind of the, 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 the Cuomo guy who'd made it big. So he wanted, he wanted, you know, and I think- he Started off as a Moynihan guy. Yeah, that's right. And he bridged that, he bridged that divide. And um, what I know, I do not know the contents of the phone conversation, um, but I do know that 
one of, if not the last calls that Cuomo uh, placed before making his decision was to Russert. And I believe my understanding of it is that Russert understood that Mario Cuomo's heart was not in this and that Mario Cuomo was looking for permission not to run for president and that Tim Russert essentially, you know, told him because this budget showdown was happening in Albany. If you go to New Hampshire and you don't have a budget deal, uh, Bill Clinton will tear you apart with it. I, I talked Cuomo to Tim about reason. that and you've got it pretty much exactly right. Tim, yeah. Tim said he didn't have his heart in it. Yep. He didn't running against a sitting president, no matter how damaged George H.W. Bush was at that point. Mario Cuomo just said there's always 96. And, yep. And so that was it. And, that, and that, the whole thing changes. It opens up for Bill Clinton after that. No Cuomo. And that the postscript quickly is like, I, I, there's this debate, you know, among real political junkies, like if Cuomo gets in, what happens? And there's some people who say Bill Clinton was just this incredibly once in a, a lifetime talented politician. He would have found a way to beat Cuomo. I say no. And the reason I say that is because it, what you have to remember is three weeks later, after Cuomo doesn't get on that plane, the Jennifer Flowers scandal hits. So two things happen. Number one is it, that I think if Democrats had a viable alternative to Clinton, like Mario Cuomo, they just would have gone with Cuomo. We won't even take a chance on the scandal. So I think there's that. But the second part is part of the Jennifer Flowers scandal was she produced tapes, recorded conversations with Bill Clinton. And on the tapes, Bill Clinton trashes Mario Cuomo and he calls him yep. mafioso and all these mob insinuations. And it was this, this thing that Mario Cuomo was deeply sensitive about always the insinuation he had some kind of mob ties, the anti-Italian bigotry. Mario, if, if Mario Cuomo had been a candidate for president and those tapes came out with the allegations of an affair and Mario Cuomo already leading by 20 points in the polls and getting all the money, I think Mario Cuomo would have destroyed Bill Clinton with that. He would have shamed him out of the race. I, I, I believe right. that. I, I can't prove it, obviously, but that's, that's yeah, my view on it. We're going to stop you there. And we're going to go back to the South. Sorry. So there's another major character. Yeah. <laughs> you got Clinton, Cuomo, and then Newt Gingrich. Yes, Newt. <laughs> and reading it, again, how you are growing up and you don't understand what's happening necessarily behind the scenes, but then finding out how Newt Gingrich really changed the behavior of men and women in Congress mm -hmm. who are serving. That was surprising to me in a way that I guess I didn't expect. Maybe I was a little bit rosy-eyed, but you write in the book, when no one was looking, Gingrich saw an opportunity. And so could you set the scene? You go back to May 15th, 1984, and the showdown that took place between a little-known backbencher and the legendary man of the house, Tip O'Neill. Yeah, it, it, 1984 is, is Newt Gingrich's third term in Congress. So he's relatively new. And when he got there in, in 19, early 1979, Republican leaders thought this guy was just – he was a bloviator. He was a pest. He was an irritant. He said – he told them the first day he was there. He said, I'm going to lead this party to the majority. The Republicans at that point it had been 25 years since they'd had the House majority and they weren't even close. You know, they were like 100 seats away. So it was, it was considered pretty much impossible for anybody, let alone this you know, guy from Georgia – I guess you become so familiar with someone over time in American politics and you feel like you know the person and their identity is just so rock solid that you forget about how they came to that point. And Newt Gingrich, I remember from the 90s, my grandfather and my daddy talking about their admiration for him and they liked what a, you know, coming in and shaking up the status quo back then. And Cut to 2008, 2012, and his presidential bids and 
that Newt Gingrich and more of a scammer with a private plane that he was paying for through some pretty dubious fundraising schemes. And you remember that at the beginning of all of this, he kind of ushered in this era of political nihilism. No, you don't think of Newt Gingrich as the backbencher. And Steve did an excellent job of putting us back to 1978, 1984, when he's this little known congressman and he really makes stuff happen. And what he did was he recruited a small band that grew with time of true believers. And and the basic theory was, I mean, it was partisan warfare. It, it was we need to fight the Democrats on everything. And, and every fight we pick, we need to maximize the contrast because we need people across the country to see a choice between conservative small government, welfare state, big government, conservative values, you know, liberal libertinism, that, that, everything needs to be a contrast. And one of the avenues he found, one of the vehicles he found, and, and I think this is, you see the future here in a lot of ways. He found a way around the major media institutions, which at the time were the big three networks, ABC, right. CBS, NBC, really no other major way to get on TV. Cable news didn't really exist. CNN was in its infancy. No, no Fox, no MSNBC, nothing like that. C-SPAN, you know, the cable channel with the yep. camera on the house Brian floor. Brian Lamb, C-SPAN. Yep. And it had just, it had been on the air for a couple of years and they put it in, you know, out of a curiosity in the house, but nobody really paid attention to it. And there was this provision of house rules that said at the end of any business day, any member can claim the floor for as long as they want for any reason. And nobody ever really used it. When they did, they would, you know, I, I'd like to dedicate a post office in my town to the high school principal. It'd be that kind of thing. Um, and Gingrich said with his friends, this is, this is an opportunity. This is free television time. This is a cable channel. Anybody with a cable box in this country gets this channel. And so they started claiming the time every night. Nobody else is competing for it. And they'd stand there, one, two, three, four of them, and they'd yield to each other. And they wouldn't really talk about usually what was happening in the House that day. They would just talk politics. They would bash the Democrats. They would bash the liberals. They, would, they were producing what you would today recognize as a, a conservative cable news show. And it was on C-SPAN and anybody flipping through their channel could find it and they would develop a following. And, and one night, 1984, what they basically did was they named 10 Democratic congressmen who had written a letter to the Marxist government of Nicaragua and they, they came close to accusing them of treason. And it's 11 o'clock at night in the House. Nobody's there. The camera's only trained on the person speaking, so the viewer doesn't necessarily know this. And so it looks to the viewer like these 10 Democrats are too cowardly to come up and defend themselves. One of the Democrats they're naming is the best friend of the Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill, Massachusetts Democrat, 72 years old, old school Boston, you know, sort of portly old school Boston politician. Took John and F. Kennedy's seat. John, yeah, James Michael Curley, John F. Kennedy, yep. Tip O'Neill. That's the lineage we're talking about here. He sees this and he is irate and he has the power as the Speaker of the House to order the C-SPAN camera to pan the chamber, which he does. He says, you know what? Show that these guys are talking about. So he makes the C-SPAN camera uh, pan the chamber. He thinks he's embarrassed Gingrich. He thinks he's kind of shown this, this little, you know, irritant what's what, and that'll quiet Gingrich down. Instead, Gingrich demands time to explain himself in front of the entire house, makes a big deal about it. So in full session, a couple days later, 10 a.m., O'Neill's presiding, the chamber's packed. He recognizes Newt Gingrich, who even the Republicans aren't taking seriously. And, and, and O'Neill takes a seat on the floor, he says, because I'd be very interested to hear what the gentleman has to say. And, and Gingrich starts to, it's Gingrich, it's world historical, it's Marxism of the left. He's talking about all this stuff. And O'Neill can't believe it because he thinks Gingrich is about to apologize, and he's not. And so O'Neill demands to be recognized. Gingrich knows what's happening. He, he yields to him, and O'Neill just erupts. And he goes after him and he says, you know, what you did is, is, is one of the lowest, one of the worst things I have ever seen a person here do in 32 years of being here. And the Republican side realizes he's broken house rules. You deliberately stood in that well before an emptied house 
and challenge these people, and you challenge their Americanism. And it's the lowest thing that I've ever seen in my 32 years in Congress. Mr. Speaker, if I may reclaim my time, let me say, first of all, Mr. That, Speaker, I move that we take the Speaker's words down. The Speaker just broke House rules by attacking another member directly, individually. So they moved to have O'Neill's words stricken, taken down. And there's chaos for 15 minutes because the parliamentarian knows he has to rule against the uh, who's O'Neill. In the chair? Who's in the chair? Uh, there's, uh, Joe Moakley. It's Joe Moakley, right, from Massachusetts, also right. from South Boston. And the parliamentarian, they wait 15 minutes. They, they rule against O'Neill. He has to sit down. Gingrich gets to keep talking. And when Gingrich finishes 20 minutes later, he closes his binder. He walks up the Republican side and you see all of these Republicans who thought this guy was just sort of a nut job who they didn't pay attention to before. They give him a standing ovation. And he has shown them what that kind of partisan combat feels like. And he beat Mr. Nice Guy. Bob Bob Michael. That was and that was the contrast for Republicans. Which I wonder in terms of alternative history, you're talking about Mario Como. What if... Mr. Nice Guy had won out yeah. as the standard bearer of the Republican it, it, Party. It, it was, well, that was the whole the whole choice for Republicans in the 80s. In, to which of those two directions? In that Tip O'Neill moment, I have to say, and I, I, I didn't read, I listened on Audible because it was, it was one of those things. You were with me for about 17 hours yet. <laughs> and, but one of the most dramatic moments in that was I think you said it was the first time in the history of the Republic that a speaker's words have been taken yep. down. And Gingrich forced that. He created that moment. It launched him into this stratosphere. And suddenly this former frustrated, angry history professor who is representing Georgia but is from Pennsylvania, an army, you know, military brat, goes into the national spotlight as this bomb thrower that the Republicans and as you said, he wanted to lead them to the promised land and that's where it starts. Take us take us through the next part. Yeah, of you- and, and it validates everything he had been telling Republicans and they'd been ignoring because as you're saying, at least, the Republican leader at the time was this guy, Robert Michael, Peoria, Illinois, literally nicknamed Mr. Nice Guy. He was golfing buddies with Tip O'Neill. They played poker. He, he would go to tribute dinners for Tip O'Neill and say, I love this man. And, the, you know, and, and it was just as conservative as Gingrich. Yeah, so and he, he was conservatively absolutely, just absolutely. didn't behave. But in willing a to way. willing to compromise. That was the that was the difference, I think, between Michael and Gingrich. The, the big one was at the end of the day, Michael wanted to sit down and cut the deal. And Gingrich said, if you cut the deal, you're complicit. If you cut the deal to get the tax hike cut from 10 percent to 2 percent, you've hiked taxes. We don't hike taxes. We're Republicans. And I think that was the big difference. And Gingrich had been telling Republicans, you follow Michael. It's a ticket to permanent minority status. You have to fight these guys. And Tip o- nobody nobody thought of fighting Tip O'Neill, but when he did it that day, they were like, it was a light bulb. This could work. And you said at the end of the day, and this was back in the day when the expression was at the end, after five o'clock, we're all friends. Right. And that was the collegiality that existed. And to, again, to watch the house today and to watch what we've been watching, this is unthinkable. But these were people, I mean, we had it in the Senate as well. Bob Dole was one of Moynihan's best friends. Today, this doesn't exist. And so- is that the moment when that breaks down? Yeah, it, I, and that's, it's, the, it's the moment that legitimizes Gingrich as a force, and he just grows so rapidly from there. A couple years later, he leads this campaign. It's another first in the House. He takes down another Speaker of the House, Jim Wright, who was Tip O'Neill's successor. No Speaker of the House in history had ever been forced out on ethics charges. Gingrich leads this campaign over, over uh, royalties from a book deal that Jim Wright had, wages a year-and-a-half campaign. It's the same thing. Republicans don't take him seriously when he starts it. By the end, they've got Wright on the ropes. June 1st, 1989, Jim Wright 
announces he's going to speak to the House at four in the afternoon. Whole place is packed. He gives this emotional speech defending his character, saying he's going to he's going to fall on the sword to try to save the institution from what's infected it. And he's talking about Newt Gingrich. And it's, it's an amazing speech to go back and look at. And by that point, Gingrich has made his way into the House leadership. And it's the next year. I think it's the real defining moment was 1990 when George H.W. Bush, Bob Michael, Mr. Nice Guy, Bob Dole in the Senate, those Republicans cut a deal with the Democrats An to army taxes. Base, right. And it was right. The summit, the budget summit of, of 1990. Bush, of course, had said, read my lips, no new taxes in 88. Then he cuts the deal to raise taxes with Democrats. And Gingrich, who's in Republican leadership by that point, he leads the fight against it and they kill it on the floor of the House. It's this huge, embarrassing defeat for Bush. He has to go back, cut a new deal, totally on the Democrats' terms. He doesn't think he ever recovered from that in 92. But Gingrich, by beating a Republican president in a moment like that, that's when Gingrichism, I think, had taken over the Republican Party. One of the things that I was struck by in going through the book is there's the policy, but then there's the the style, the tone. And, you know, you talk about that 92 campaign, and obviously I remember that great scene in the war room where James Carville's talking to Mandy Grunwald on the phone. Yeah. He said, I, I just need to read my lips, no new taxes, I don't care. And I think the, obviously the Clinton campaign in 92 was a reaction to the Dukakis campaign mm-hmm. in 88 that was slow, that did dumb things like put on helmets in a tank. Right. And then the Clinton guys come out and some of those were Dukakis veterans like Stephanopoulos and others and they come out firing and they almost out Lee Atwater who was – who had passed away and gotten 41 elected. And so when does that tone change forever to what we have today, to this sort of angry, nasty, mean, personal politics? Yeah. It, I mean that's – it's it's that collision. It's described as an infection. Right. And now it's just a full-blown cancer. And it's – I think a couple things happened. I mean what, what I'm describing here, you know, Bill Clinton's ascent, Newt Gingrich's ascent, they collide. 94, 90, yeah. yeah, 94 collides. Yep. Tell us about that. And I remember reading – I think it was Roll Call and it was probably about September of 94. I was – it was – Moynihan was chairman of finance and we had these big, beautiful offices in the Dirksen building and we weren't we weren't worried in the Senate. We weren't going to – lose and the house they thought it was going to be tight but they didn't think it would be what it was and i just remember roll call saying something like can you imagine if the republicans win the house and newt gingrich becomes speaker and someone says well can you imagine if the republicans win the house and newt gingrich doesn't become speaker right but it was surprised to to insiders and people who read that set up 94 contract with america how they did it yeah i think and i think this is the thing people forget when we look at we're in 2018 right now, and we're looking ahead to a midterm election where everybody knows the Democrats could take back the House. They're favored to take back the House, I would say. They needed to get a gain of 23 seats. It's totally doable. You can look at the districts. We've seen the House flip in 2010. We've seen it flip in 2006. This is not a, a major deal to have a tree. I mean, you know, it's a major deal, but it's not, you know, out of the out of the ordinary. In 1994, the concept, the, the term was the Permanent Democratic Congress. It had been 40 years and the Republicans weren't even close. They were never 23 seats away. They were, you know, 70 seats away, 80 seats away. They were buried deep, deep in the minority uh, in the House. And so, yes, the, the sense in 94 was Bill Clinton's approval rating. But what happened was Gingrichism, which is we don't compromise on anything, met Clintonism. Clinton president, Democratic House, Democratic Senate. 
And so Clinton came in with this very big ambitious agenda and he was met with a Republican party that was new. It was different. It was Gingrich. It was, no, Mr. President, we're not going to meet you halfway on healthcare. We're not going to meet you halfway on your, you say we need to raise taxes to fight the deficit here. We're not going to meet you halfway on that. We're not meeting you halfway on your stimulus. We're going to filibuster your stimulus. We're going to give you zero votes on your tax hike. And then we're going to tell folks you delivered the largest tax increase in American history. Or some went a step further and said it's the largest tax increase in world history. History of the world. In the history of the world. They used that one. We're not going to compromise with you. They started out, Dole and some others in the Senate started out taking steps towards compromise on health care. And then other other voices, including Gingrich, told them, don't, there's no need to even do that. You, and, and by the end, Republicans were dug in against that. And they struck political gold. They made Bill Clinton look like a feckless incompetent. And Bill Clinton had all sorts of, the White House was chaos for his first year too. So Bill Clinton certainly- Don't ask, don't more, tell. Yeah, and he walked, right. Rico, the guy have. who came to office, you know, he straddled, we were talking about that very fine cultural line where he could win over Reagan, Democrats, that kind of thing. He comes into office and two things happen right away. He gets drawn into this fight over gays in the military, which he'd barely talked about in the campaign. And it becomes the defining issue of his first month in the office, in the White House. And the second was he nominates for attorney general, a woman named Zoe Baird, and she had not paid the, you know, uh, social security taxes uh, on her, uh, uh, she had an undocumented- Nanny gate. Nanny, right. And it became this whole thing about the, the <laughs> privileged class that doesn't think the laws apply to them. And it was, it, that became a stand. These these liberal elites that Gingrich is always railing against, Clinton kind of played to type. Um, and it all builds to 1994. And it's it, it Republican Party, which Gingrich has spent the last 16 years winning, o- winning over, they strike gold. They win 54 seats in the House. They win the Senate. And, and Republicans look up and they say, this guy can do no wrong. This new Gingrich, we bought in and we've just won the House for the first time since 54. We have the Senate and we're going to finish off Bill Clinton in two years. The Washington Post said Daniel Patrick Moynihan went from being one of the most powerful members of Congress to only being able to speak when Bob Packwood called on him. And that was what that's. And yeah, we didn't realize what the change would be. And it was unthinkable. But we moved on to these small offices and that was the scene that, again, you described. And it was a revolution. It yeah. was a true revolution. And that Republican revolution. And, and Democrats in the House who'd spent their – I mean, Bob Michael, the, Mr. Nice Guy we were talking about, he retired in 94 because he – by that point, he saw Gingrich was you know, was going to eclipse him. And he also thought they'd never get the majority. He was he was convinced his party would never get the majority. He would tell people for years, he said, I've been, I've been serving in the Congress since the 1950s, and I haven't served one, one minute of one hour of one day in the majority. And he would tell them that sort of, you know, Gingrich would use that against him and say, yeah, that's you're the problem. <laughs> but, but that was that was his reality. And then the Whitewater Special Counsel. And how long did it last? And what was the ultimate impact, do you think, of that? And, and before you answer, I just have to say, because I was a young staffer and I went with my senator to meet the press. Yeah. yeah. It was November, it was January, <laughs> January 9th, 1994. Right. Russert asks. Should there be a special counsel? And, more, and again, this is unthinkable today that a Democrat would – right. Democratic president. And Moynihan says, yep, nothing to hide. Get it out there. Two days later, Janet Reno appoints special counsel in to Elisa's question. Tell us how long it lasted and where it went. Yeah. Uh, and the Clinton White House was not a fan of uh, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, I can, <laughs> I can safely say. But that was uh, – Something the, he enjoyed. The, um, <laughs> right. Uh, yes, that's also true. Um, yeah, the Whitewater story had been building and building – and it was one of those nobody really understood. It was an Arkansas land deal, but nobody really understood what the Clintons were possibly accused of to the point there was this this Saturday Night Live sketch from the fall of 1993, where if you remember the in the 80s, they had the We Are the World 
yep. uh, the video where all the musicians, Stevie Wonder and Ray, everybody got together and sang to, 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 as a, a fundraiser um, for, for famine relief. So Saturday Night Live did this spoof where all of the, the greatest stars in music got together to sing a song to explain whitewater to people. <laughs> it was, it's a pretty good sketch. How, um, and how conspiratorial was the press coverage? back in the day of Whitewater and of Vince Foster. That was right. That was one of the precipitating events. The summer in 93, uh, Vince Foster, who had come with the Clintons from Arkansas, um, part of the, you know, the White House counsel's office, commits suicide. And he had, he had had a very hard time adjusting from Arkansas to D.C. He had been, he was not used to the public spotlight in any national oh, sense. Top law firm in Little Rock, but not anything like D.C. And the Wall Street Journal in its coverage of Whitewater and in the Clinton White House, the Wall Street Journal had sort of its editorial page had really focused in on Vince Foster. And I don't think Vince Foster had been ready for that. I don't think and I think it among many other factors, he he, he ends up he ends up committing suicide. I'm not saying just because the Wall Street Journal, but just that level of, of, of scrutiny. And um, and then. There are there's reports that papers have been removed from his office within hours by Bernard Nussbaum, who's you know a, a White House attorney, and then there's all of this. Um, geez, did he have the Whitewater files that are at the heart of this thing? And then uh, papers turn up right before Christmas night. All this momentum builds, and it's January '94 when it's Daniel Patrick Moynihan, Democrat luminary, Dem- Democratic luminary, who says there should be a special counsel. So the Attorney General Clinton says, "I agree." At that point. Janet Reno appoints uh, Robert Fisk to be the uh, special counsel, and it looks like Fisk is going to kind of wrap up his work sometime in 94, and it's not going to be that bad for the Clintons. But then there's this this momentum for Congress to do a second thing, and that's revive the old independent counsel statute as the Watergate era thing. And it basically requires – it's the convoluted thing where Janet Reno, the attorney general, has to go to a three-judge panel – she recommends Fisk to keep doing the job, and, and the expectation is Fisk will probably finish up and it won't be bad for the Clintons. The three-judge panel, in a big surprise move uh, in July 94, uh, replaces Fisk with Kenneth Starr. And now Kenneth Starr is the independent counsel, which means unlimited budget, unlimited time frame, unlimited mandate. And from that in 94, you can get all the way to 98, and his investigation of a land deal turns into the Monica Lewinsky investigation four years later. <laughs> It was the it was the government shutdown of 1995 right. when you got, you know, now Gingrich, Republican uh, Speaker of the House, Republican Senate. And, and this was that that mood we were talking about a minute ago where Republicans strike gold in 94. Gingrich is a genius. We've done nothing but win since we got behind Gingrich. That's the philosophy. So Gingrich's next move is to finish off Clinton. And he's going to do that with this grand showdown over the size and scope of the government. And it's going to be Medicare. Republicans, in Gingrich's view, are going to be the responsible party that reigns in the out-of-control explosive costs of Medicare, tames the deficit, claws back big government. And his reading of 1994 is that's exactly where the country is. And Bill Clinton's reading is the country likes its Medicare. And Bill Clinton says, hey, you want to shut the government down over this. You pass that. I won't sign it. We will go into a shutdown. I'll take my chances. And they go into a shutdown. Country sides with Bill Clinton, but while the shutdown is taking place, um, Monica Lewinsky is in the White House, delivers pizza. You talk about Whitewater and the conclusion of it in the Monica Lewinsky. Right. It breaks in January of 98. yep. Hillary Clinton goes on the 27th of January, the Today Show, and she uses what phrase? The great story here for anybody willing to find it and write about it and explain it is this vast right-wing conspiracy. 
talk about the vast right wing conspiracy. Yeah, no, it, exactly. It, Hillary Clinton's response to the reports of, a, of an affair uh, between her husband and, and Monica Lewinsky was to, to claim that the story itself was the product of, of she's used the term, a vast right wing conspiracy. And, and she was there. There had been an absolutely organized, coordinated, well-funded effort, you know, sort of behind the scenes by conservatives to dig up embarrassing information about the Clintons to harm them politically. That was absolutely an aspect of the 90s. There was that was going on. And she connected this story to that when she said that there were some sympathetic Democrats who said, yeah, she's got a point there. But popular culture looked at that and said, that sounds like paranoia. That sounds like a delusion because popular culture looked at Bill Clinton, thanks to the 1992 campaign and Jennifer Flowers and many other things, as a dog. (laughs) Of course, this must be true. And she's, you know, how could she not see this? And and of course, the way that story ended up unfolding, it was true. No, no, that was that was part of the human drama. You know, I could keep talking and we could do a two hour podcast. But Steve, you're in the middle of a busy book tour and we're not going to take that much of your time. But I guess to close, what do you think you learned researching this era that influences how you look at today and the political atmosphere? Yeah, I, it's this is I wish it was a more inspiring or, or optimistic um, thing that I think I learned. But a lot of what I'm describing, a lot of what I kind of credit to Gingrich in terms of how he sort of changed the Republican Party and changed politics and and. and a lot of this then is, is, is how the Democratic Party changed and evolved and responded to that. And that's the birth of our tribalism. There's a certain, I think, inevitability to it when I look back at it. It didn't have to happen when it did, how it did. But I think it was always going to happen because the parties before the 1990s were in a lot of ways kind of a, a chaotic mess. You had conservative Democrats you know, from the South sharing a party with liberals from the North. You had liberal Republicans from the Northeast you know, sharing a party with you know, conservative isolationists from the Midwest. And in a way, that actually made Washington more functional because they could, they could work across party lines much more easily. They could look across the aisle and see people they could relate to you know, from all different angles. But it was sort of inevitable that, hey, we, we have a two-party system in this country and somebody was going to figure out that, you know, especially a Republican whose party is locked out of Congress, it's going to figure out, hey, we need to be more cohesive. We need to have an identity. And and that was what Gingrich started to do with the Republicans. The Democrats kind of responded to that. And and I, I think we got two very cohesive parties where it's, I, I guess the, the legacy I left with is is, is this, it's, it just sticks with me. When I say red and blue, the rise of red and blue and how red and blue is much more than just party color, party label now, it's, it's this. It's a poll from 2016 that asked, Republicans and Democrats, they said, would you be upset if your child married somebody from the other party? And the answer was yes from over 60% of both of them. It's like what interracial marriage used to be. And that was never a generation ago. It started in the 90s. A few people would have been upset if their you know, Democratic son married a Republican and a daughter, you know, but it, nothing like we have now. And I think that's the evolution. These parties, it's more than just your, your opinions on issues. They have like deep cultural identity meaning to them. And I think that's the legacy of the 90s. Wow. That is definitely something that's petrifying to ponder. But important yeah, I should, should have been about, more optimistic. No, Sorry. <laughs> about. And I just want to tell all of our listeners that you should check out this book. It gave my brain a workout in a different way that was enjoyable, even though it's disturbing to actually look at the history and be like, wow, this is when things started to go yeah. a little off the rails. It really did just kind of 
provide a nice break from the current day-to-day news cycle, which we all know can get a little heavy. Thank you. So thank, thank you. you and that's writing it. I had the same experience. It was a nice little escape into a, a different place. So great. Thanks for coming today. Thank you guys. And here's a special deal for our listeners. You can download the red and the blue by Steve Karnacki on audible right now for free. Here's what you do. Go to audible.com slash words matter or text words matter to five zero zero five zero zero to start a 30 day free trial of audible and your first audio book is free. Get Steve Karnacki's new book free at audible.com slash words matter with your 30 day free trial. Speaking of books, Elise, I know you read a lot of them. Talk a little bit about how and when you consume books. I read books whenever I have a chance. The patterns vary. Sometimes I'm reading a book that is about politics and it's something that is dominating the political conversation. So I have to ingest it as quickly as humanly possible. And so I'm downloading it on my Kindle at 12.01 a.m. and trying to cram in as much as possible before Morning Joe and also trying to get some sleep. And then I also love to just pick up a fun fictional read and just not worry about anything and kind of escape. And you're a traditionalist. You read books either in your Kindle or a hard copy of the book? I pretty much read exclusively from my Kindle if it's a new book. If it's a book that's hard to get, I have to, you know, hunt it down on Amazon and order it from a used bookstore But pretty much I'm kind of a Kindle girl now. I got converted, and once you get started, it's hard to go back. Well, we're going to convert you again. I love books as well, and Audible has literally changed my life. I'm a multitasker. Audible is perfect for people like me. I listen to books when I'm cooking. I listen to books when I'm cleaning. I even listen to books when I'm watching a baseball game. I put the game on the television. I mute the sound of the announcers, and I listen to a book. When I'm working out, I listen to a book. It's gotten to where long plane rides don't even bother me anymore. Stuck in traffic, I listen to a book on Audible. And if you switch devices, you'll never lose your place. Audible has literally hundreds of thousands of titles. If there's a book you like, chances are it's available on Audible. And right now, with our special offer, you can go to audible.com slash words matter and start a 30-day free trial. And you'll get one free Audible title with your 30-day free trial. That's audible.com slash words matter. Audible, because words matter. Thank you for listening to Words Matter with Elise Jordan and Steve Schmidt. For more information on our show and hosts, visit wordsmattermedia.com. Please rate and review Words Matter on Apple Podcasts and other podcast providers. 